0: Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. Uh, the, the very first time I, I talked to Ezra Klein was when he randomly tweeted at me about Community in like its third season. I don't remember when it was. Just, just to see if Community was going to be renewed, which felt like a weird thing to do because I I knew who he was. I had no idea he knew who I was. Uh, And then a couple of years later, I I sort of learned he was launching a news site and I was interested in in going to do something new. So on Memorial Day, he was out taking his dog for a walk and he gave me a call and we talked about you know the future of culture reporting and culture writing on the internet and how to get people to uh, read things about shows they had just streamed, and the way that you sort of talk about things as cultural events in the streaming age when everything can be watched at any time. And I was very happy to come and work with him at Vox, and we haven't solved all of those problems yet, but we've sort of gone about finding ways of making it happen. So I wanted to talk to him, A, because he's my boss, but also B, because I'm interested in what he sees as the media landscape of the future, and I want to know why he likes superhero comics so much. So my guest today, Ezra Klein. He is my boss, among other things. So we're gonna take it a little easy today. Um, yeah, only softballs. <laughs> but uh, I actually wanted to have Ezra on because one of the first time I ever interacted with Ezra was uh, on Twitter in like 2011.
1: I, I'm I'm shocked by the idea that I tweeted at anybody. <laughs> I worked so hard to stay off of having any conversations on Twitter that, that the idea that there was some younger, more innocent version of me actually interacting with human beings on social media, it seems so so gentle. So I, uh, optimistic.
0: I actually I want I want to talk about your, your Did Twitter. you tweet a Pepe frog back at me? No, I did not tweet a Pepe <laughs> frog back at you. I think it was because Matt was already involved. Like I think that was that oh, was okay. the situation I was on the I, canoe. Yeah. <laughs> um but I so I wanted to talk to you about your cultural consumption about like your world as you see it through pop culture because you are engaged in pop culture. You do consume a fair amount of it. Um, but people don't see that side of you too often. Um, and I primarily know that you are into superheroes. I know that you love superhero comics, superhero films. And I'm wondering, like, is that is that a lifelong thing for you? Or is that something that's developed later in life as it has for many so
1: it it's a bit of a a u-shaped curve so when i was young i read a huge number of comics in fact there were there were a number of years when my allowance from my parents was delivered entirely in comics i think they my dad was big on you can have as many books as you want uh not other things but books he was he was very uh open to comics occupied a middle ground between books and not books so he preferred to give me uh, comic books and money, but not love comic books either. So for a while, he would let me have my allowance in five comic books a week. Mm. And that was what I did for, for some time. And so I loved comics as a kid. I fell out of them. I don't know when. I was a big reader, read a lot of fantasy, read a lot of science fiction. And I particularly read a lot of the sprawling universe kind of Cheapo fantasy, the Star Wars universe, the Dungeons and Dragons universe was, right. was a big favorite of mine. Dragon Riders of Pern, I loved. But I was out of comic books for, for a long time. When I moved to DC in 2005, I was surprised to find that a bunch of my friends here Matt Iglesias, Spencer Ackerman, uh, Kristen Caps, and others were very into comic books. Mm-hmm. And there would be times when everybody would hang out at, at one of their houses and you'd get bored and you would just pull one of these graphic novels off the shelf. And so that began to get me a little bit more into it. But the two things that really catalyzed a return to continuous constant comic book reading were one, launching box, and two, finding out about Marvel Unlimited. Mm. And the reason these things uh, came together, so Marvel Unlimited, for those who don't know, is you can pay, you can download an, an iPad app, you can pay like 70 bucks a year, and you get unlimited access to all Marvel comics up to six months ago. There's a couple things they haven't uploaded yet, but for the most part, everything that has come out on Marvel until six months ago, you can have and read as many times as you want at whatever speed you like. So that fixed the first problem I'd had with comics, which is they're actually really expensive. Right. Yeah. Um, you, I can drill through a comic in really just a couple of minutes and that it really adds up pretty quick. So, um, it, so that brought the cost to an acceptable level. And then Vox, uh, Stressed me out so much. <laughs> I mean, dealing with people like Todd Vanderveer yeah, day in absolutely. and day out. Um, I, I really did need to find ways to relax. And my reading up until that point, I'm not a big fiction reader. I read some, but not that much. But I primarily read nonfiction and 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 particularly things that directly or indirectly related to work. <laughs> uh, I was just too exhausted, too stressed. I needed to have things that would turn me off. And Marvel Unlimited turned out to be that thing. So over the past couple of years since launching Vox, I have really torn through Marvel back issues and now have a tremendous knowledge of them, but have know very little about DC because they do not have a similar app.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've I've actually always been kind of bummed out about that. I'm I'm hoping. If if they are listening, I will subscribe to your (laughs) DC Unlimited. (laughs) What, What are some of the titles that really got you and really got you back into it? So the particular run that I just loved was...
1: I hope I do not get the name wrong. I think it's Peter David did an X-Factor run from 2005 to 2009, which is my my single favorite run of comics. And this is X-Factor as a detective story. It's noir, uh, or at least has a lot of noir tropes and a lot of self-conscious noir tropes. It has this character, Layla Miller, who's one of my favorite characters in comics and who actually, I've not written this and will not write it because I think it is too obscure. But Layla Miller uh, and the way they end up Understanding her, I don't think this gives away too much, and I don't think it's really a spoiler because it isn't that close. But it's a a really interesting anticipation of the movie Arrival. The two things are very very similar to each other, actually, in in a way I thought was cool. So that was a very fresh take on precognition, on time travel, on how time might work, on what it would be like to know the future, and so I just love that. Uh, Then there are a bunch of others. I I just enjoy reading and most of the big sets i'm not as into I, I kind of follow them but it is amazing how confusing marvel's big crossover epics actually tend to be so i've the the big change for me uh, from being a kid where i would often go to Barnes and nobles and like take a graphic novel off the shelf was actually being able to read through the just runs of a captain america or a run of x-men mm-hmm. which i had never really done before and recognizing, oh, this stuff is actually much better, and in many cases much weirder mm-hmm. than what you get in the big crossovers that end up getting put in graphic novels. So I'm I'm currently a big fan of unbeatable Squirrel Girl. I yeah. think it's just fantastic. Um, I like the Miss Marvel stuff a lot. I've actually been enjoying the the most recent set of Big Marvel epics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that the Battle World stuff was kind of cool, but but my knowledge is uh, enthusiastic but but thin
0: compared to <laughs> compared to other people you might talk to. You wrote a thing uh, shortly after the election or before the election about uh, a Loki comic. Oh, yeah. That sort of influenced how you saw the election. And I'm wondering, I think a lot about how I see the world was influenced through the stuff I consumed as a child. I'm wondering how you see the world, how you see policy, how you see politics. How was that influenced by the pop culture or other, you know, higher culture you read in your youth? I do not have a pat answer to that, actually. So
1: one, I will say that Vote Loki comic series, I, I do believe, is the single best thing published mm. on the dynamics of the 2016 election. I, I believe that firmly. And and it is an interesting thing that... And I think one reason getting into comics again worked for me is that comics also came, by the way, back into the culture in a very big way. And so having a familiarity with these tropes and and what have, I think, for a certain generation become almost myths, because comics have this fascinating myth-like capability to start and restart and be retold in ways that are are more congruent to, to whatever is going on then. So it actually ended up being pretty useful for my work. I've done a lot, I've written a lot of pieces about, you know, uh, Superman as a, a way of thinking about America's attitudes towards legitimacy, right. you know, versus Jack Bauer as a way of, of thinking about America's sort of post-9-11 uh, thinking, which I, I enjoy doing that, even though it probably makes me look weird. I have never felt that my professional life, my political um, ideas or interests. I know a lot of people who can track it back to an Isaac Asimov novel or something. For instance, you'll talk to Paul Krugman and he'll tell you that that he was very influenced by the Foundation series and that made him think about how to be an economist. I don't think I really had conscious pop culture influences at that level in that particular way. And it's sort of a broader thing with me. I just don't think symbolically very clearly. And so I don't end up having a lot of things that that influence me in that way, in the way that a lot of the people I speak to, they really can track something back to a song they heard, to a movie they saw, to a piece of art they saw. Mm -hmm. And somehow I do not seem to get easily affected that way. Or if I do, I am less
0: conscious of it. Right. Interesting. Interesting. What are what? Else, I mean, are you are you a movie goer? Do you watch a lot of TV? I don't see you talk about that stuff as often. I so. do,
1: um, but the one reason I do not talk about it as often is my taste in everything is terrible. <laughs> uh, it is bad. It makes people make fun of me. <laughs> so I am a real lover, and, and here I will open myself up to the the endless mockery of the internet. I love romantic comedies. Okay, that is what I watch. So so first, and and this maybe maybe is something interesting. So my favorite part of any movie. Is the twenty minutes before anything bad happens? Okay, I I do not like the conflict. I'm right. not here for the plot. Mm-hmm. What I enjoy living in is the twenty or thirty minutes where people are just witty and they're hanging out together <laughs> and they're going to high school or whatever it might be. And I always just wish we could hang out there. It's one reason the the show Entourage mm-hmm. has many, many, many flaws. Mm-hmm. But one thing it really got right is a thirty minute happy ending. Yeah, like you, you know, <laughs> you turn on an episode of Entourage and you may not end up anxious at all but if you do it is not going to be for long you know it's like oh maybe the aquaman movie is not going to do well oh no wait it's the biggest movie ever and it happens real fast so i'm a big i'm a big fan of that kind of thing and you you so you see that escapist tendency yeah. in in what i like um the the work i do the the things i tend to think about are tough and they're emotionally wrenching and i it's very conflictual, right? Politics is very, very conflict-oriented, particularly right now. So I tend to look for things to make me feel a bit better. I have an unusual love for the movie Wimbledon Okay, the Paul Bettany—and I always get um Kristen, Kristen, Kristen Dunst, Dunst yeah, I think I it is, right? Uh, I have an unusual love for that movie. I really particularly like romantic comedies with sort of witty British protagonists. Okay. That would be my perfect Netflix category. You know how they, those very specific—I <laughs> yeah. want romantic comedies with witty British protagonists. It's not quite a romantic comedy, but I love About a Boy. I think that's a great movie. Um, in terms of television, I have, here again, pretty standard views on everything. <laughs> I also think The Wire is a good show, yeah. like, like other people <laughs> do. Uh, but the thing that I'm watching right now, and I do believe is sort of perfect, is Bob's Burgers. Yeah, absolutely. Bob's Burgers is a perfect show. Um, it It's also, more so than any show or movie I've seen— it's one of the few shows on television that makes being a family and having children seem appealing. Mm. So much of television is about the conflicts inherent in that. Doesn't mean that things don't end in a heartwarming way, yeah. but along the way, it's like the kids are always being assholes or doing something <laughs> wrong, or the parents hate each other. I mean, you can think of your sort of married with children or right. your Simpsons. Uh, and Bob's Burgers is the only one where it's like at every moment of that show, the kids are clearly an addition of joy to the parents' life yeah.
0: in a way that I find really heartwarming. I think Bob's Burgers, uh, to me, is always interesting. When I was, I was thinking a lot after the election about culture that depicts working class, white working class America. Mm-hmm. And like Bob's, Bob's Burgers is one of the few shows on TV where those characters don't have a lot of money. They're sort of struggling to get by. They're kind of, you know... whatever they they have to do to get the money they're going to do. And I've always been interested in that. And I guess as you sort of look at the world out there, it feels like a lot of people have been talking about this divide between, you know, Hollywood or the cultural content and like what real America wants, quote unquote. And I'm wondering, do you see that reflected? Obviously, you know, we are both in the bubble, so to speak, but do you look at pop culture and feel like we are not doing a great job of telling, of not just reporting on, but telling stories about this whole portion of the country?
1: I think that's probably true. I don't think pop culture does a good job of just telling representative stories in general. Mm. So I, I think that you can get overly narrow with this, right? We're not doing a great job telling stories from that portion of the country. But there are a lot of portions of the country we're not doing a great job telling stories from. Um, it's a land full of beautiful people with <laughs> not that many people real problems in, right. in a lot of cases I think it is amazing though how much that has changed and I think something that feeds into that feeling is that in the last I think it's really been 10 15 years that it has become much more racially diverse uh, my wife my wife and I have been rewatching some OC mm-hmm. you cannot make that show that way today yeah uh, you cannot have a show so I grew up in in what we did not call the OC. I grew up in Irvine California. Yeah. And Orange County is an incredibly racially diverse area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irvine, and particularly the also the areas of Newport Beach, where I think that show is fundamentally set, very heavily Asian, um, very very big Hispanic populations all across the county. You cannot do a show about that area where people of color basically did not exist. Mm-hmm. Which in, in that show, with a couple of exceptions, they they really don't. And you know, the kid from the wrong side of the tracks is is a white kid from. Chica. Yeah. I mean, it's just the whole thing is a little bit absurd. And so I do think one thing that is happening within that conversation is that there is a conversation about representation and a backlash around representation that is well deserved, but it is happening around racial representation and not in a real way around socioeconomic or geographical representation. So you do not get the same kind of criticism for not having, as you know, sort of working class folks of any race, but but including whites. Uh, who have non California accents. Right. Right. You do not have a lot of positively portrayed characters who appear to make $33,000 a year and come from the South. Mm. That is not something you see a lot of on television right now. Yeah. And I think people notice that. I think that, that there's a lot of discussion, and I know you've written a bit about this, about what is the perception of. Social progress and economic progress people have in the country, and 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 people note that despite the fact that whites are still on sort of any, on most measures you can come up with doing a lot better than Hispanics, a lot better than African Americans, they are nevertheless uh, becoming the most pessimistic group, particularly working class whites. And one reason for that might be a bit. Uh, if you Arlene Hochschild, you know she writes about this deep story that she found in a couple of years living and and spending a lot of time with Tea Party folks in Louisiana, told themselves, which is, you know, they've kind of been waiting in line, they've not gotten ahead, and now all these people are cutting in line in front of them. And obviously that story has a lot of problems with it, if you're looking at the data. And I I, I mean, I do not want to endorse it. But the feeling that there is all this pressure to represent this group, but not my group, Mm -hmm. this feeling that um, the things I believe are becoming not just underrepresented, but literally unspeakable. Yeah right? I, I always think about in American culture. In 2004, mm-hmm. John Kerry lost the presidential election. And one of the narratives that emerged from that, and I, I think research showed this is probably not the case, but one of the narratives that emerged from it was that he lost because of gay marriage, mm-hmm. that Republicans had cynically and smartly put gay marriage initiatives onto the ballot in a number of states. Yeah. And that brought out evangelical voters and helped it helped George W. win the election. And that was the prevailing space in America. In 2004, we were in it, and that was not that long ago, that if you just made it possible to vote on gay marriage, that might destroy the election for the Democrats. Uh, George W. Bush and others had talked a lot about a constitutional amendment against gay marriage. Fast forward really just 10, 12 years, and gay marriage is now constitutionally enshrined. Mm -hmm. And um, being against it is a sort of impolite opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, You can guess where I am on this question, right? I believe that the Constitution should give people the right to marry. And I believe that it is cruel, like genuinely cruel, to deprive people of that happiness who aren't hurting you. So I I don't want to be um, unclear about this. But by the same token, the feeling that what I believe is becoming not just um, dismissed in culture but actively opposed by it, it, it will create a deep resentment, and I think we are dealing with some of those resentments around multiculturalism, around different kinds of social change and progress. Uh, I had this interview on my podcast with JD Vance, and there had been this long time discussion of, you know, was it economic anxiety motivating Trump voters? Was it was it racial resentment? And he had this good term, I thought, which is cultural anxiety—sure—that uh, something that 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 my culture is beginning to 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 erode, mm-hmm. that it is becoming displaced. And you can feel that way without it really being the case that you don't want others to get ahead, that your concern is you falling behind, not so much them going ahead. Right. To go back to Arlie Hochschild's deep story, the problem is not that other people are doing well, but this idea of the line itself, the idea of a zero-sumness of who gets ahead and who doesn't. And I think all this is swirling around in the culture mm. um, in a way that is very hard for us to discuss well and is very toxic. I think it's hard for us even at Vox to discuss it well. There, there are many days when I don't think we're nailing that. And just because it is so difficult and it is so complicated and it takes so much reporting and so much empathy and, and and so much knowledge. And so I do think it's hard. And I think that pop culture is a place where it is it comes out in some of its most aggressive forms mm. and people experience it because pop culture in a way that's not like politics. Pop culture is supposed to be a representation of your reality. It's not an argument somebody is having with you. Right. And so and then when you get read out of it, I think it's probably quite painful.
0: we're all fans of something me and you're going to say wow this is this is the most typical thing ever for you vanderwerf I'm a fan of newspaper comic strips. I love looking back at things like Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes, some of those, those great old strips. And, like, I have lots of books of them. I have lots of, like, figurines from some of my favorites. It's it's kind of a weird thing, but it, it's, it's what I'm into. But with everything changing about the way we consume culture, the nature of fandom is changing, too. So I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, and it's about why we love what we love. In each episode, you'll hear from amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the future. Guests include Charlemagne the God, Tom Colicchio, and many, many more. Subscribe to Fan Club now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club. Again, that's vbyviacom.com slash fan club, or wherever you listen to podcasts. ¶¶ It's interesting you bring up gay marriage because one of the things, one of the ways I sort of think about the world uh, is increasingly is pop culture is the subconscious of whatever nation is is producing it in some way. Even the most corporate plastic piece of shit summer movie somehow reflects what America thinks about itself, even if it's sort of self-loathing in some way. Uh, and, and you bring up gay marriage. And I think a lot about how if you look at attitudes about gay people, when Will and Grace comes on the air. Attitudes about gay people start to shift toward more positive to the place we are today where a majority of Americans, you know, support gay marriage, know a gay, no have a gay friend, so to speak. And that is interesting to me. You can't prove that Will and Grace did that, But that correlation, which obviously is not causation, is interesting to me because I always sort of wonder, I think that we tend to think that you make policy and it will affect the culture. But I always wonder if it's the other way around. If we change how we think about things in the culture, that eventually affects politics. I think that's completely true. I mean, I I remember the episode of Ellen <laughs> where she came out.
1: Yeah. I remember I was a kid. I remember reading Time Magazine's coverage of the episode of Ellen. I remember watching that episode of Ellen. And I didn't know... I don't even think I, I really had a concept of sexuality that was
0: that clear. I, do you remember what year that was? That would have been, I think, 1997, maybe 1996. It was somewhere right, like there. So I was 10 or 12, so I should have had a concept of sexuality.
1: <laughs> but I, I was young, and I definitely did not have a lot of experience. Um, my uncle was gay, and, and by that time, I actually died of AIDS during the height of the plague. So I knew a little bit about it. But I just remember watching that and just— really trying to understand what it was because it was such it was being treated as such a cultural event and really trying to understand what it was that I was seeing. And these things do matter. Um, as you say, causality, I think, is very hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. I think it's very hard to say, are, are we changing the culture? Is a culture changing us? I think it's very hard to say when something is a leading or a lagging indicator because you can make the argument that will and grace could only happen right because yeah. it was in a country that was ready for will and grace to happen. right. But I certainly do think it's true that— the fact that the cultural epicenter of the U.S. is Hollywood and then to a lesser extent New York, I just think it matters. Um, Hollywood and New York, people talk about them as liberal, but that's not even really what's going on there. Um, their liberalism is uh, it, its significant, but those are cultures that are more progressive than much of the country in some ways and not others. I don't think Hollywood and New York have dramatically different opinions on single payer health care yeah. than some other places in America do mm-hmm. but i do think they are often on a very leading edge of lifestyle change and lifestyle progressivism mm-hmm. and that stuff ends up mattering i think that it, it is possible that the point at which hollywood is ready for those things is is earlier and i think that often ends up being good i think that again you know where i'm from i'm from an hour south of la like i i swim in this water Mm-hmm. Um, I I'll say similarly to it I have an enormous amount of emotional trouble with the way immigrants are being spoken about and treated in in this country right now because I come from a place that was very very heavily uh, populated with, with Hispanic and Asian immigrants and um, and I'm sure I knew a number of, of unauthorized immigrants growing up and you know what they were part of my community um and the dehumanization of them it I, I really, I really react viscerally to it. Yeah. This idea that um, that they're somehow they're hurting mm. us, and and it just infuriates me. Like it, it genuinely, not much in politics really gets me that emotional, but it genuinely infuriates me. But I had a very different. It is notable that a lot of those impulses are coming from places that are are not at all diverse, that are that are quite white, that are seeing this from from the outside in. Whereas I lived in this place where of course you have a heavily polyglot culture and it's part of the culture and it's celebrated and it's how you live and you see it around you all, all the time, but it ends up giving you in a way fully separate from my political opinions, a very, very different view of what is normal and what is acceptable. And, and that maybe is like the right term. If you live in, if you live in Hollywood, you live in LA, you live in New York, different things are just normal to you. Mm -hmm. And to the extent those things are controversial in other places, being on the side of your culture's values, it has a non-financial kind of compensation to it. Other people are proud of you, right? right? You get slapped on the back. Your movie may not have made a lot of money, but it was brave, mm-hmm. right? You were doing something for the, for the good here. Yeah. And by the same token, if you go the reverse way, mm-hmm. if you push against that, I think there are there are social sanctions fully separate from whatever financial audience the the movie does or does not find or the show does or doesn't find. And I think that does, that does exert a powerful role and it pushes
0: Hollywood to being, again, a little bit more of a leading indicator than a lagging indicator on a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. As somebody who uh, runs a major media publication, one of the things you wrote last year that I thought was really perceptive was the media was very against Trump not because it was liberal, but because it was cosmopolitan, right. basically. And I'm wondering, all the major publications are based in New York or D.C., a few in L.A., a few elsewhere around the country, but they're based in major urban areas. Is there a way to see beyond... We're used to like looking for conservative columnists, so to speak, but many of those conservative columnists, you think about it, were anti-Trump or never-Trump or whatever because they, too, were cosmopolitan. Is there a way for the media to... Figure out a way to see the world through that cosmopolitan lens, but also talk about the opposite of that, which is where I grew up, where everybody was white and like nobody knew, uh, nobody had seen a black person, basically. Um, where we, when we had a famous basketball player, Manute Ball, come to town, like he was certainly nobody was overtly racist to him, but it was like a very great object of curiosity because we had not seen something like this before. So, is there a way to open our media that's based in cosmopolitanism up to this other world um, in a way that sort of enhances both, I guess. It's interesting. And,
1: and it's, it's a really difficult question. So I will say the media can always be and should be more representative. And, and that's not just racially diverse or even ideologically diverse, but where do people come from? What kind of schools do they go to? These things are really genuinely important. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it is amazing to me how I went to UCLA um, which is uh, I went to Santa Cruz and UCLA. So collectively, my schools—they're like thirty or forty thousand kids, right? They're big. It is amazing to me how many more people I meet here from Harvard than from all of the UCs combined. Mm. And the UCs are like California's a big state. <laughs> it's you know it's well known. Those are good schools. They're not bad schools. So there there are definitely biases here, but it's also worth being careful. I mean. It is very important for the media to, to work on understanding, and, and there are very interesting arguments about the delineation between understanding and empathy, mm-hmm. but but I think it's very important for the media to to understand the world on which it is reporting. And, and people disagree with me about this, but I don't think it is merely a mirror, nor, nor do I even think that is possible, but I do not think the role of the media is to merely be a mirror. Mm-hmm. I do not think that we when we all get together and we celebrate the great achievements of the media— that what people look at is it's complete moral neutrality in the face of whatever might have come. And it's just unstinting reflection of it. And again, this is a very tough line to walk. I'm not saying the media should be activist. I'm not saying it should always be trying to push push an opinion. Trump ran on a platform that while it was important to understand why it was resonating, there are parts of it that had a deep ugliness to it. And not just that, but parts of it, much of that ugliness is based on genuine mistruth, right? Genuine lies. Whether he believes them, you know, you can argue if he's lying or, or he's just wrong about a lot of things. But ugliness built on an incorrect diagnosis of the problem to give people a scapegoat. I think that history should make you very concerned about that story. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, Trump was also, by the way, quite unpopular, uh, I think a lot of the story of this last year is a lot of institutions and processes breaking down in unusual ways. So primaries, for instance, being a, a great example, primaries are extremely unrepresentative. Uh, very, very few people vote in them. The people who do vote in them are different than the the party at large. Trump was able to bulldoze through the primary in a very, very large field, in part by getting all of the attention for saying very outrageous things. And he managed to make more than half of the Republican Party very, very upset at him. <laughs> but the people who liked him really loved him, right? right? He was a great niche product. But then having won the primary, he was sort of, were so polarized that he really was assured the support of, let's say, 45% of the country, of, right. the, voting, of the voting public, and then was able, you know, with the help of some luck and some other things to get, help help geography too, to, to get uh, over the finish line. Now, what should we have done there? How should the media have been different? I don't think the media was doing an insufficient job. I really find this annoying. I don't think media did an insufficient job talking to Trump voters. No. Trump voters were were looked at and reported on in a way that Obama voters never were, in a way that Hillary Clinton's more quiet supporters never were, in a way that, um, that, that virtually nobody else's support base got it because they were treated also, in some ways that were unfair too, as a curiosity, as something yeah. strange, as something that had to be explained. Whereas if you were supporting Marco Rubio or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders even people did not that those all fit um patterns that we'd seen in politics before right Bernie Sanders is sort of like a Howard Dean figure Hillary Clinton was establishment liberal Marco Rubio was a sort of like Obama like Republican you know was the the trope and so people didn't feel the need to explain it so so I do think one thing it's it's important to not just see the fact that Trump won as evidence that the media failed to try to understand what was going on. I think the media put a lot of resources into into understanding that. I think the thing people are quietly upset about there is they often feel that if the media had done some kind of different and better job, Trump wouldn't have won. But if anything was really good for Trump, it was just the amount of media coverage he got. What he understood that was very unusual was that it didn't matter if it was positive or negative. Like a reality television show star where It's okay if you're the villain as long as you're the one on camera. That is still a way to win the show. He got that in a way no other politician does because politicians, what they want and crave is positive coverage. So I think that that was different. But to to go back to the original point here, if Marco Rubio had won the campaign, I think the media would have ultimately been a bit biased towards Marco Rubio. Mm -hmm. They didn't like Hillary Clinton. They like newcomers. They like young people. in as a general thing, I, I, I think that's actually a fair thing to say they sort of tend towards supporting change and Rubio didn't offend anybody's the, the, the part of liberalism that the media really does reflect, which is not an economic liberalism, but a cosmopolitanism, a, a belief in pluralism, diversity, uh, America as a polyglot nation that all would have worked out for him just fine. So I think the media is less politically unrepresentative than people think it's, it's incentives are a little bit askew from that and it operates in a different space. Uh, But I do think that there is a genuine uh, difficulty that it has around what do you do with something like Trump, which is a strange phenomenon, is unpopular, and is in some ways genuinely at least resonant of dangerous things that have happened in this country and other countries before. Mm -hmm. How do you cover that with understanding and with empathy, but without losing your own soul so much that you can't say, hey... What is being said here is is wrong. I, this is something Chris Hayes said to me once, but the Muslim ban, when Donald Trump actually came out and, and putting aside the travel ban that we've actually put in place, which is clearly targeted Muslims from a certain set of countries, the, when he actually just said, I, Donald J. Trump, am supporting a full stoppage of travel by Muslims to and from the U.S., if you just replace the word Muslims with Jews, mm-hmm. you understood exactly what was going on there. Yeah, And the fact that, I mean, it sort of got covered like that, but sort of didn't. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I don't know what the media's role was in something like that. Is it to try to figure out why people want a religious group barred from traveling in and out of the country? I mean, I guess partially, but I don't. But even in doing that, I don't think that we should forget
0: what is actually being said there. Um, at least as a Jew, I don't want to forget what is actually being said there. You, you talk a lot about finding compassion for everybody, even somebody you, you sort of violently disagree with. But as somebody who again, runs a major, major media publication. And now the president of the United States is essentially trying to invalidate the media in some way, trying to say, you know, this is not real. This is not true. And there are a lot of people out there. Like I, I, again, I grew up like this. I grew up thinking the media was telling lies all the time. And to have the president validate that idea is very powerful for a lot of people. I think I'm wondering if not even as a citizen, but as a as someone who runs a major media publication. I like can like, I keep saying I run a major <laughs> media publication. I'm just I'm just trying to bolster my own <laughs> self as well. as someone who is, you know, the editor of Vox. What's concerning about that to you, even just beyond the obvious, if that's frightening? So I'll say that this is a place where I actually have a lot of compassion for Trump. If I were Donald
1: Trump and the media covered me the way we cover him, well, first, I think I would try to ask why I get so much negative coverage and, and try to reflect on my own behavior, right? Because I, I will say the media would love nothing more than to cover Donald Trump normally. Every time he does anything even remotely normal, like nominate a qualified member of his cabinet or read a normal speech off of a teleprompter, we fall all over ourselves to say, oh, it's a Trump pivot. It's, yeah. you know, this is great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, he's just going to govern the country like, a you know, in a, in a responsible way, Trump there's a lot of chaotic unusual things, there's a lot of things that aren't true, it gets a lot of negative media coverage. But from within recognizing that he has his own limits. And I think those I think he is a person who is in, insanely talented in some ways and then unusually limited in others. I think his his capacity to exist outside of his own narrative and to look at it and to ask what about it is good and bad and what about it should be changed is very low. He's not an aspirational person in that way. He's ambitious but not aspirational. I think Marsha Gesen is the one who said that. So, but he gets this very negative coverage mm -hmm. and it wounds him. It really does. I mean, the thing about Trump is he's more obsessed with the media than any previous president, at least that I know of. His consumption, I mean, back when I used to work at the Washington Post, I remember people in the newsroom would just get these notes from Trump where he would have photocopied an article and scrawled notes on it and sent it to them about him. And he, I think this really hurts. And one thing people do when they are repeatedly hurt by some Institution or set of people who they want to be accepted by, as they turn on them, mm-hmm. and I see what Trump is doing as both strategic but also deeply human, mm. and so I don't, I do think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. There's a good point made by a political scientist named Yasha Monk, who says that the idea that Trump is an authoritarian it, it misses a distinction. He's not an ideological authoritarian. He does not have a set of ideas about how authoritarianism would be better for this country. He does not come in with a plan to weaken the judiciary, but he can be an instinctual one, a contextual one. In in certain contexts, when Trump is rejected by something or when he's foiled by something or, or fails in the face of something, he will turn on not his own behavior but on the institution. So when the media is good to Trump, Trump is all for the media. He loves the media. When the media uh, is covering things that his administration is doing negatively, in part because those things are— Being done very poorly, or maybe are not good ideas. He does not ask questions about himself. He turns on the institution. They become the enemy of of the people. I am not fully persuaded that this is going to be that big of a deal in the long run. I think the language of fake news has been very damaging. It's moved from people just saying, hey, I hate what you're doing. You're wrong. To there's now this permission structure to reject anything you don't like as fake news. That accelerates a fracturing of what is and isn't true that was pre-existing. But I do think more of that is pre-existing than, than people give it credit for. Uh, I think that fake news is a very useful conceptual term, but that is being adopted because people believe it's antecedent. Uh, if, if they didn't, I think this fake news thing would be very, very hard for them to buy into. And I'm pretty immersed in all this research about how partisans absorb information. And our information processing capacity is not what any of us wish it was. Mm -hmm. We are all more, we all have more of a tendency to fool ourselves and fool each other and believe what we want to believe. And we always have. It is built into the human brain. So now we are being given more permission to just say that's what we're doing. And maybe that's even useful in some ways. But it's not good. But I... I believe it represents less of a sea change in how people actually think about and relate to politics than might seem obvious. You know, there's broader questions of illiberalism with Trump, uh, and there's broader questions of things he might do to retaliate against the press. To the extent it stays with keeping people out of briefings, that is bad. I am upset about it. But I really, by the same token, think that briefings from the Trump administration are less valuable than they have been at other times. Mm-hmm. Sean Spicer, I don't even know if people are lying. Mm-hmm. Kellyanne Conway, I think, is often lying. I don't even know if people are lying or if they're just literally wrong. Mm-hmm. It seems to me a lot of people inside the administration, from my reporting and others, are just misinformed about what is happening at any given moment. But the the, the administration as a conduit of information to the public is a very uncertain one right now. So to the extent it stays with, you know... Briefings for favored publications, no briefings for non-favored publications. That's bad. It's not the end of the world. But to the extent Trump begins using antitrust powers to retaliate against Jeff Bezos or tries to change libel laws in this country, that stuff gets
0: much more dangerous very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I sort of want to pivot to the opposite side of this question, which is there is a lot of criticism of the media in general, but also I think sometimes Vox in particular from the left. Uh by which I mean, you know, the uh, people who are advocating for greater focus on economic, uh, something more like so, uh, being social democrats or socialism, something like that. Sort of where do you see that coming from? Uh, and have you read any of that stuff and said, you know, by God, they're right about how the media treats these issues?
1: I think that there is, I read a lot of criticism of Vox, and I think there's probably truth in all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, this stuff is hard. Uh, we do our best. We don't always get it right. I don't think that, particularly when it comes to issues of treating social democratic policies with seriousness, I think Vox is actually about as good in the media as anybody is. I think we're as good in in the media as anybody is at treating just policy in general Mm -hmm. with the seriousness it deserves. I think we have done a better job explaining the Republican Obamacare alternatives to people and taking them seriously than any conservative publication I actually know of. I think we did a better job also on a lot of Bernie Sanders policies than anybody else did. I'm, I'm very proud of that work that we do. And I think that uh, one thing that often gets us crosswise with people is we hold or try to hold policy to a very high standard. And sometimes ideas that are good ideas that have not been worked out in as much detail fall apart a little bit. Um, And we've been critical of that. We're critical of that with Bernie Sanders. But, you know, at different times, we've been critical of that with all kinds of different politicians. Um, and, And I do think that one thing that was hard for the Sanders shop is they had not expected to blow up in the way they did, and they did not have the policy structure under them. But when he was a major candidate for the presidency, we also still had to say, like, hey, you know, the promises being made in this healthcare bill don't add up. Ah, uh, but I think that Vox gets a lot of criticism from folks on the left for you know reasons good and bad. I think some of them is that there can be a feeling that maybe we would be sympathetic, so it is more painful when we're not, or it's more angering when we're not. I think another one is that there's a feeling nobody is hated more um, by uh, by folks than the folks like just like a little bit to their side, mm-hmm. and there is certainly a backlash against. A kind of technocratic, what people call—I don't think—with a lot of precision, but I think we also get what they're referring to: neoliberal um, identity. And we are definitely a technocratic site in the way we approach things. Uh, I think more so, frankly, than we have much of an ideology. We have a sort of approach, and you know that has come under some fire. I think people in in certain places feel like that's really failed. And then I think that there's just politics is conflictual people are angry we get a lot of incoming from folks on the right too um we kind of get incoming from all over and that doesn't mean i i think there's a very lazy thing people in journalism do where they say well the left and the right are criticizing me that means i'm doing a great job yeah. um i don't buy that uh but i do think that it is very hard particularly if you're going to be in the position we are where we allow our writers to come down where they come down to be clear about their conclusions to take positions i think that you will that you will that you will almost by nature piss a lot of people off doing that. I will say with the left, I do think one of the very interesting fights happening within the among the left right now, which relates a little bit to our earlier conversation rep- around representation has to do with identity politics and it has to do with identity politics and its relationship, what people call identity politics. And its relationship with economic populism, the degree to which the Democratic Party frontloads one and not the other or the other and not the first, right? A lot of the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton primary had to do with that. Um, I think something we have tried to do since launching Vox is take questions of identity really seriously and as quite separate from other questions. I mean, it's not that they do not intersect with things like class because of course they do, right. but I think that we've tried very hard to think hard about that. And, and as we built our staff, make sure we we're really covering that. And I, I do think that, in an interesting way, I have noticed around the political currents we have ended up in, that both from the right and the left, there is much more anger around those issues and what is where is the right place to fall on them than there are around the economic issues. Mm-hmm. I think we had a lot less incoming around our tax or our healthcare coverage than we do for our coverage of um, diversity and different kinds of representational issues and different kinds of... Uh, ideas about privilege say like the the wars that get sparked when you begin talking about privilege or when you t- or when you begin talking about what is implicitly biased or racist or gendered and what is not those are very very angry and i think in part it's because some of those issues are only now uh, really getting taken seriously by the political realm i do think that one long term thing that happens is issues get absorbed by politics is people develop sort of safe and understood ways of how to talk about them. I don't think that has happened in these cases yet. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a very kind of bloodless technocratic language that gets applied to something like tax reform now. Even though, I mean, it will impoverish some people, even though it will really change how this country goes. But when you talk about spending cuts and tax reform, people are are able to talk about things that are literally life and death Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I find actually frustrating with a very high level of kind of almost quasi-academic remove. But when you're talking about things like transgender rights or privilege on campuses or sexual assault on campuses, some of these issues that the political system is only now coming to treat with, I think, the seriousness they really do deserve, that language is much weaker um, and it's much less mature. And people get offended much more deeply. People feel like they're being called racist. They feel like they're being called sexist. This happened a lot around the Bernie Sanders-Clinton primary among people, I think, who were of good faith and constantly felt like they were getting, you know, the, the Clinton people felt like their concerns were being dismissed. The Sanders people felt like they were being called sexist all the time. There was a lot of pain. And I think that has been a place where, you know, I think we come in both for praise from some quarters, but certainly criticism too, and i think it's just it's a much it's a much harder space not just for us but as far as i can know for everybody in the media and frankly in politics to navigate there are failures of language and of empathy and of compassion and of understanding there all the time i think of martin o'malley accidentally saying yeah of course all lives matter mm. and not knowing what he was walking into there and i don't think it's because he was trying to make I, I, he was not trying to um, annoy the Black Lives Matter people, he just really did not understand the issue yet. And I think there's a lot of that happening in these spaces. And, you know, it's certainly something that every day, like, we are working and trying to say, okay, like, how do we make sure that we know what people are talking about here, know what the language is? And when we're writing about it, try to write it for the maximum number of people to be able to read that and feel, whether or not they agree with us, feel understood in in the piece. Mm. And by no means, like in every area of our coverage, I think we succeed every day, but but it's certainly something that we give a lot of
0: thought to. Fox is turning three. Uh, it's pretty young in the grand scale scheme of things. Uh, and it, when it launched, it sort of had a lot of, uh, you did a lot of interviews, you did a lot of conversation around like how you were going to proceed, how the site was going to proceed, what was going to be different about the site from some of the rest of the media. And I'm wondering, looking back on those days, we've kept a lot of that. Some of it we've sort of, Jump to decide what's something you think you got wrong in those early days and what's something you think you got really right So the
1: big thing that that I got wrong was I didn't see the platform fracturing coming. So it was clear when we launched Vox it's very important that you distributed your work through social media right that you put it on Facebook, you put it on Twitter. But what happened uh, beginning really about a year after we launched and really accelerating over the past two years was that instead of these platforms being spaces for basically marketing, which is what they were, they became the home of your content themselves. So a lot of people now read Vox on Apple News without ever coming to the Vox website. We don't put links. We put articles. Same is true for Facebook. We have one point, I think it's five or six million subscribers on YouTube. They may never come to Vox.com. They only understand Vox as it exists on YouTube. It's a wholly different audience. Uh, I've, and I will occasionally get stopped uh, on the street and so be like, hey, you're the guy on those Vox videos. And I'll be like, yeah, I am, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I love. But one thing that meant is, you know, because now we're publishing full pieces to, to Facebook, to Google Amp, to YouTube, to Facebook Video, to uh, Apple News, to Flipboard. And I'm forgetting, I am sure, a bunch of them. Now that we do that, A lot of the early theories around Vox, around how we were going to build really cool features into our platform, they don't make as much sense. Working on your own platform, uh, building sort of an amazing annotation tool uh, that that would only function here if you came to Vox.com. If most of your audience is somewhere else, that is not a great idea. So that, I think, has been a a big change and in some ways a frustrating one because I think for us and for others, it is slowing down a lot of innovation that was really beginning to happen around how could we present an article? What formats could we really work in? And and that stuff was exciting. The thing that I think we got right uh, was that there was a space for a publication, a news publication, really based on the idea of explanation. And people react to that language in very different ways. Um, and some get very frustrated by it, and 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 I, I get their frustration because you know there can be feeling. Are you saying other people don't explain, and, and how dare you say that you know I need anything explained to me? It's a very condescending uh, approach, and I hear them, and and I, and I worry about that stuff. What we meant by explanation is that a lot of traditional organizations, news organizations, they've been built and designed for the core product to be the new bite of information. It's why Twitter has been so dominant in news, because a lot of news, the literal new thing, is short enough that you can put it in 140 characters. Uh, What we are built to do is to focus on the contextual information that makes that new piece of information comprehensible. And we have built a lot of different formats from our formal explainers to our explainer videos to the 40 map stuff to winners and losers, to all these different things we do, what what unites most of the formats we use is that they are, are organized to surface more context. And in particular, in a way that I, I think people, they like it when they experience it, but they, it's not always obvious that we're doing it. We have formats that are very good at breaking the boundaries of a story. There are a lot of stories out there that if the way you would normally write a news article about them is within the boundaries of the story. The Republican Party has a new Healthcare plan. So you write about what is in that plan and what is, you know, what is in there, the, the leaked document, and, and on and on and on. But in order to actually understand that document, you really need to know a lot of things that are not part of it. So, how do subsidies in Obamacare work? Are they working well or not? What is the structure of marketplaces now? There's all this stuff that just properly fits in another article that happened some other time. Right. And or if you're talking about the Syrian Civil War, on any given day, There is not like a new fact about Alawites and their historical enmity with with some other groups. Um, So it doesn't really fit in the boundary of an article about today, Assad bombed this area and these many people died. It doesn't make a ton of sense to go. Anyway, and here's what an Alawite is, and here's how those ethnic tensions have divided Syria. But to understand the Syrian civil war, you really do need to understand that. So we have a lot of formats that are built to bust the boundaries of a story, where a normal story that moves very linearly, paragraph to paragraph, it's very hard to go outside of its lines and say, here's something very fundamental, almost a question too basic for most people to answer, but we're going to dive deep into it. We have a lot of things that are designed for that. And I think it's made the work uh, very valuable to people because when we are at our best and and look like we are many, many days not at our best, but when we are at our best, I think that we can take somebody who got interested in a story they maybe have not been following and give them enough information that they do not feel confused by it anymore, that they feel that they can read everything else on that topic and know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think traditional media has not done that well. It's done many, many other things well and many things better than we do it. Mm -hmm. But that thing, I think, has been sacrificed for other objectives and I think it's a place where we have excelled, and I think the, the audience we found, which at this point has far, far, far exceeded my, my hopes, um, it's shown that. It's shown that there really was a market for that and that there was something not being done. Right. And actually, I think that one thing I'm very proud of is I think that the rest of the media does a lot more explainers in the way we do them now, and I think there's a lot more good explanatory journalism happening everywhere in a way that's just valuable. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very proud of, of whatever part Vox played in pushing a little bit towards that.
0: One of my favorite things about being a dude is shaving. Shaving for me is one of those nice little respites from the rest of the world that I just get to sit there and focus on my face and the shaving lotion and the feel of the brush and all of that wonderful stuff and when it's done, I always feel sort of rejuvenated and refreshed and ready to take on the day and the Art of Shaving, founded in New York in 1996, has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years The Art of Shaving has your total routine covered whether shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin body or fragrance. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils, as I can attest. The four elements of the Perfect Shave have been created to Deliver smooth results every day. Start by prepping skin with their signature pre-shave oil, then create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush. Shave, then replenish moisture with their after-shave balm. Finish off the perfect shave with one of their five fragrances: sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products while never having to worry. Our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code Todd T-O-D-D, two D's in the name. To get this offer, go online to theartofshaving.com and use my special promo code Todd, T-O-D-D to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. You can also visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or if you want a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations near you. So very early in my my time at Vox, you tweeted out something I'd written with my Twitter handle in it and my mentions for about 12 hours turned into this collection of just random crap, basically, (laughs) this just endless flow of it. And you are very good at tuning out that chaos. I am not good. At, like, I've wasted a lot of time and effort and therapy <laughs> on talking about like trying to get everybody on Twitter to like me, basically. I'm wondering, how did you get good at tuning out social media noise? Because you're probably the best person I know at it. I just stopped. And by the way, I, what
1: I want to be clear is I can't do the thing you're talking about. I cannot exist within the social media noise and compartmentalize it. I'm... As bad as, at that as anybody you know, it really stays with me. It really hurts. So what I do is I don't look at it. I have not looked at my own mentions on Twitter since, I believe, 2012. I think that was the last time I've looked at my mentions. And so I just don't. Like, it is a rule. I do not go in ever. And what that has meant saying is that, which I think a lot of people have trouble saying and, and maybe shouldn't say, is I'm going to miss the good stuff in there. I'm going to miss the tip. I'm going to miss a compliment. I'm going to miss an interesting counter argument. I'm going to miss a criticism worth hearing in order to just not get on a roller coaster of praise and criticism, and also just garbage, right? Just also just like stuff I don't need to be seeing uh, because it's just not that useful. And it's so addicting. That feedback mechanism is so addicting. I think we are also addicted to it, particularly journalists, in a way that is really, really bad for our lives and does not add value to our work and does not add value to our, ourselves. But my secret, such as it is, is that I cannot be 95% good about these things. I either have to stop or I'm just going to be in it. And so with something like Twitter, what I did was just stopped. Mm. I just, one day I decided never to go back in there again and nothing had even happened. Uh, I just decided this was not good for me. I was also, it's not just criticism. You get addicted to praise too. Mm. And that's also not good for you. And so then I just never looked at him again. And that has been a
0: very, very, very good decision. Do you, remember some, do you remember some moments when you sort of started to have that feeling? You say there was no one, like, key moment when it was a breakthrough, but do you remember kind of what drove you in that direction? I
1: had just been through, I think, so this would have been 2012 or early 2013, maybe. And so we we're at the other side of an election, and elections are just very angry, like they're just angry spaces. People are just pissed. <laughs> and they're right to be, right? These are high stakes. I'm not taking that away from anybody or, or from me, right? I, I get emotionally invested in elections too. But it just, I, I didn't think that was adding value to my life. And I'll, I'll say, in it, maybe in a more um, conceptually rigorous way, the other thing that I, I do understand about that stuff and try to be rigorous about with myself is that Twitter and Facebook and these other things are creating a lot of hurting tendencies among journalism, uh, among journalists. Mm -hmm. And as a basic rule, if I am absorbing only the information other journalists are absorbing, I am not going to be any better than they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am not smarter or a better writer or anything that is going to give me some kind of big leg up. So... Twitter was very addicting. Facebook's very addicting. You keep coming back. You feel like if you don't come back, you're going to miss something. Meanwhile, the New Yorker article sitting in my Instapaper account, I know it's always going to be there, so it's easy to forget to ever touch it. The book sitting on my nightstand, it's not running away. It's not disappearing into a stream, so I won't touch it. And something that I am always trying to do is create more space to read and and do the kind of work that will give me ideas and information that other people don't have, the reporting, the reading a hard book, the reading a think tank document other folks are going to skip over and spend less time on the information everybody else is also consuming because I will get the best of that bubbled up to me, right, in other people's articles and and so on. I don't need to be mainlining it. Mm-hmm. And, and what I do need to be doing is creating my own sort of informational advantages.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd hope to talk to you more about your pop cultural tastes, but we sort of got off on a tangent. Uh, but so I kind of want to come back there for our last yeah. couple questions. What are you looking forward to in the near future? Movies, TV, books, just, just stuff that is total nonsense that you're looking forward to consuming?
1: Well, at this moment, as we're speaking, I have not seen Logan, okay. which I'm very excited about yeah. seeing. So mm-hmm. I'm going to see that. I am. Uh, I just saw Lego Batman, which was better than it had any right to be. It was a, <laughs> almost a perfect movie. I thought yeah. like so well plotted, so beautifully done, so many great callbacks. I'm trying to think of what I am. I'm looking forward to. I I'm currently engaged in because I'm six months behind because I'm on Marvel Unlimited. I want to see how the rest of Civil War II plays out in Marvel. So no I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the Infinity Gauntlet series coming out in in movies. I'm trying to think if there are specific pieces of pop culture that I am anticipating. I'm not very good with the release schedule. Sure, I don't tend to have, like, a sense of of what's coming. I go to a lot of shows, uh, so I'm excited about a bunch of concerts coming up in in the next couple of months. But I think that might be a, a little a little bit of a different kind of thing
0: yeah who's, who's your favorite band who do, you, who do you listen to
1: so i listen to a lot of just weird um electronic music primarily some of the albums i listen to the most i think boni vera's self-titled album is a perfect album mm-hmm. i listen to it all the time i listen to a lot of strange dj sets i, I really like a a guy who's a german dj named ali farbin and he has these great two three four hour sets that I, I work to a lot i'm a big fan of rufus De soul mm-hmm. Uh, which is I think an Australian trio, but their album Bloom was my favorite album of 2016 and, and people should check it out if they haven't. Big Wild is excellent um, and I've really liked, uh, I think they just came out with a new, I don't know if it's a full album, a bunch of great songs, The song Empty Room I think it is is fantastic. Uh, those, are, those are the folks I'm,
0: I'm, I'm into right now. I, I always like to ask people this question but what is like a terrible movie date or a terrible concert date that you were a part of that you just totally misjudged the situation and and brought somebody to something that they were not going to be into.
1: Oh, that's a great that's a great question. So I I never did that much sort of movie or or concert first dates. Uh in part because it just always seems sort of awkward to me. Like by the time I was taking to people to taking people to movies it would be more more settled. Uh you you know you know each other and know what what you liked. I went as a high schooler to see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, though, with with a girl I was um, seeing. And it's funny because we—this is a little bit weird, sir—but like impolite, weird high school kids, we made out for the movie. And I've slightly always regretted that I've never actually seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, <laughs> which seemed like a really great uh, no. movie to see on a, on a big screen. I'm trying to think of other things. I actually am very cautious about taking people to concerts, mm. Uh so I I love my wife like the day is long she is the best but we do not go see much music together because like my music is not her music and the last thing I want is to be somewhere with my love of something being mediated with my feeling of somebody else's mm non-enjoyment of it. That's really hard on me. I I, I really yeah. get that. It's a reason also with a lot of my favorite movies, I just don't show them to people. Mm. Like, I don't really want to know what other people think of Wimbledon. I just <laughs> love Wimbledon. And I just want that experience to be pure. So it makes me realize having this conversation, I'm a little bit private about my pop culture. Um, unless I really know that somebody likes what I like, mm. I don't want the responsibility or the disappointment of trying and failing to introduce someone to it. Mm. And so I, particularly because my music taste and, and music is probably the form of culture, music and comics are probably the culture I consume most.
0: Mm.
1: I definitely don't bring new people into that. Yeah. Um, unless, you know, like my best friend and I have very, very similar music tastes. And so we we go, actually my couple of best friends and I, mm-hmm. thankfully all very similar music tastes. So we go see a lot of shows together. But I will not, um, for the most part, I don't take folks who I'm not sure will like it because it's just like, it's a bummer to see someone there and be like, Oh, this this is clearly just noise to them. (laughs) And I get it. Like I totally get it. Like my, a lot of things I like are, are acquired tastes and maybe tastes even that should not be acquired. But it's, it's, it's a very, I think unusual and, and, and sad experience to see something that that is meaningful to you fail to land with that meaning for, for someone else. And I think
0: that over time I've become a little more protective of those experiences. Finally, um, you can take this question however you want. You can take it to be most profound, the thing I can return to the most often, the thing I've gotten the most out of. But what to you is the greatest work of art you've ever seen or heard
1: or read? So my favorite book, which I just think is a really extraordinary, extraordinary book, and that I've I, I read and reread a number of times and just still think is amazing is Grapes of Wrath mm. by John Steinbeck which I recommend everybody read. And if you haven't read it since high school or you didn't read it in high school, it's worth it. It more than holds up. It's a really amazing book about capitalism. It's a really amazing book about workers and the power people do and don't have in different economic formations. The book is a really powerful spiritual undercurrent. And that book means a lot to me. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that, that also have that dimension. The other thing that I would just say that the one I've always had a lot of trouble appreciating fine art. Mm. Uh it's not something I like about myself. I'm not I'm not here to tell you that's just a white, you know, painting with a dot. Like, I don't believe that. I believe that I am continuously missing things. Poetry, I'm not always great about appreciating. But something I really do appreciate is uh artistry around food. Mm. I am really, really amazed by contemporary modernist cuisine. I had the amazing good fortune at one point to go to El buli mm. which was probably the most profound artistic experience or one of them that I've had, just like what they were doing there. It really was art through food. And I just, I do not do any modernist cooking. Uh, I actually can't eat most of it because I'm vegetarian and, and depending. And if I'm at home, I'm vegan. But I own a ton of modernist cookbooks. And it's a kind of art book that I really love paging through because somehow I really connect to it. I get it. I, I understand that there's an amazing alchemy happening here where things are being turned into other things and a sort of magic is happening. And people can be fed, but there's, you know, but beauty is the the foremost form and the foremost concern. And so that that has been a, a space where I think I've developed an appreciation of of art and artistry and the artists behind it that has really worked for me. Um, and, and even if I don't anymore really appreciate it as food.
0: <laughs> mm, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Here's some closing credits. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Mo and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design was by Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. The production manager for the show is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our podcast editor is Peter Leonard. Audio engineering and post-production are courtesy of P3 Post. This week's episode was recorded at the Vox Media studio in Washington, D.C., and our recording engineer for the week was Peter Leonard. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back Next week, with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody I think is pretty interesting. And until then, please remind me to eat some breakfast.